This is The Two Poles, a new podcast exploring our present and future with the Arctic and Antarctica. Each week I'll be speaking to scientists, explorers, adventurers, writers, filmmakers, musicians, and regular people who live and work in the polar regions. They'll bring you unique access and insights into some of the most remote and fastest warming places on the planet. In this episode, we hear once again from Matthew Phillips of the British Antarctic Survey. He was supposed to be one of the last people on Earth to travel to the seventh continent for the long, dark winter season, where he was due to take up his role as the winter manager at Rothero Research Base in the Antarctic Peninsula. From March to October each year, Antarctica locks down, with no ships coming or going, temperatures plunging to well below zero, and near darkness descending for months on end. On the science research bases spread throughout the continent, teams known as winterers live and work on base and monitor climate research projects. Matthew has been one of those winterers for the past nine years, and this year, as the coronavirus spread throughout the world, he was one of the last people to be travelling down for the winter season. When last we spoke, Matthew was in the Falkland Islands where he was in self-isolation, awaiting the trip down to Antarctica. But the coronavirus has changed his plans. This is episode two of the Two Poles podcast with Matthew Phillips. This episode is supported by Eco Business, Asia's leading source for sustainability news. Visit ecobusiness.com for daily award-winning environmental journalism. Well, Matthew, this is an unexpected phone call. Can you just give us an update? How are you and where are you? Very well, not showing any signs of the COVID-19 virus and slightly unexpectedly, I'm back home in Scotland on the west coast of Fort William. So my uh, journey to the Antarctic got stopped a little short and I was turned around and essentially sent home. So for anyone who didn't catch the first episode, Matthew, you were on your way to the Antarctic where you were going for the long winter and I thought we'd probably speak in about nine months time. But in the time since we last spoke, what has happened for you? I was just finishing off my kind of 14 days self-isolation on the Falcons and then hoping to get on the, the Bass aircraft down to the station. And I would have probably have done another 14 days once I got to station. But uh, yeah, essentially the decision was made that it was too much of a risk, even though it looked like I was virus-free and there was no kind of signs that I might contract it. It was decided that essentially it was too much of a risk to send me down to station because obviously at the moment with winters kind of closing in pretty quick on station, if I had gone down, you know, with each day that passes at the moment, it's becoming increasingly difficult to get people on and off station. I mean, it's always difficult, uh, but particularly when you, at this time of year where the weather's really quite volatile, you know, it's changing from summer to winter. If I had gone down with it and uh, it started to spread around station, not only would that have been really bad because, you know, there's no kind of serious medical 
facilities there outside of a doctor. You know, it's not equipped to deal with coronavirus, not even one patient really. So yeah, me potentially taking it down and spreading it around at this time of year, particularly when it's getting so difficult to get people on and off station, would obviously be a, a fairly unpleasant uh, scenario to go through. So yeah, the safety decision and uh, yeah, I'm now, I'm now back home. And so what did it take to actually get home? I flew back north, I did the, the same journey I did south, so that's flying from the RAF base in the Falklands, Mount Pleasant, back up through Senegal, stop off in a refuel, and then after about 20 hours of flying back to RAF Bryce Norton in Oxford, and then and then I got to drive, there was myself and one other person, one of the pilots from our aircraft, which they were obviously kind of sent home at the end of the season as well, and we've left the plane there in the Falklands until we can get out of there that's another story in itself and then yeah, you drove a hire car up very very quiet motorway and then up the A82 to Fort William which was as quiet as I've ever seen it so um, a long journey but relatively pleasant for what it was to be honest and how was that even getting back into the UK I mean did you get stopped and if you did get stopped you would have to say to the police we're returning from the Antarctic I mean would anyone even believe you <laughs> well, uh, yeah, so we, we did have a, a letter from uh, the head of HR at Bath basically explaining that, you know, we'd, we'd been down south and, well, that's not perhaps particularly true in my case. You know, the, the whole point was that I, I was essentially working for Bath and we were considered essential staff for them um, and the pilot was returning at the end of the season. But yeah, essentially a letter from uh, HR explaining, you know, why we had to travel. And we did see a few police on the road uh, and we were going to come up with some kind of uh, fanciful story uh, to tell the police about, you know, why we were travelling and say, right, there's two stories. They're both far-fetched, <laughs> uh, but one of them's true. You've got to guess which is which. But I suppose that depends on the police that we were going to meet and, and how uh, much of a sense of humour they had at the time. And so for you, I mean, how, how difficult is that to get your mindset back into the reality of being in the UK? Because we've talked at length about what it's like going down and being isolated, living and working on the Antarctic for such long periods of time like you do. And you obviously ready to go down there for the long winter and said goodbye to family and friends. And now within a matter of a week or so, you're back. Can you see your family? Can you see your friends? And what are you going to do now being back in the UK? Yeah, so um, it was really strange. So uh, I think even before I left the UK, you know, there was a small part of me that realised there was a small percentage that I wouldn't actually make it to the Antarctic. I might make it part of the way or, you know, I might not even leave the UK. And, you know, with each step of the journey, you know, getting from Rise Norton down to the Falcons, I thought, all right, OK, there's a reasonable chance uh, that I'm still going to get to station or, you know, the odds are still slightly in my favour. But then as time went on, I started to realise that those odds were decreasing. It was becoming more and more likely that I wouldn't get south. And so, yeah, there was for three or four days, I knew that there was going to be a decision made, you know, that was above me, if you like, whether or not I would go south. And actually, that knowing that I might have to come back to the UK didn't actually bother me as much as not knowing which was which, because you probably caught down to the fact I was essentially torn in two, you know, there was half of me thinking, well, okay, in a few days' time, I might be in the Antarctic and I might be there for the next nine months, or I might be back in the UK, which is obviously a massive swing, because I think the Antarctic is as close as you'll get on planet Earth to feeling like you're on another planet. Um, so to essentially be there kind of sat in limbo, not knowing which way it was going to go, that, that was more difficult than the actually knowing that I was going to come back home. Once I was told that, yeah, it's not going to happen, you're going to have to go back home, essentially put out of my misery a little bit. That was totally fine. And that decision really didn't bother me. I think if, you know, if I'd become upset or, you know, it really bothered me or uh, thrown some kind of tantrum, um, 
I would have felt quite selfish. I think that would have been the selfish thing to do because there's people in much worse off situations than I'm in. Um, so actually, it's not too bad. And so can you just talk a little bit about what this means for the British Antarctic Survey and their operations in the Antarctic? Yeah, sure. So um, we don't know yet how this is going to affect us. I think that decision will come there fairly soon. Um, other national programmes have announced that they've, they're going to kind of cut back in what they're going to do. For us at the moment, it's a, a case of kind of waiting and seeing. But essentially, everything is on the table. It might be a reduced season or it might be a season as normal. But um, I think, you know, everyone would really like it to be the season as normal. But I think we need to wait and see what's going to happen with vaccines and so on and, and, and things like that. So there's, there's just too many factors to predict what's going to happen. So yeah, <laughs> I maybe should uh, try and predict that at the moment because I'll probably end up with egg on my face further down the line. And have you talked to any of your team members who are staying down there for the winter? And what did they say to you? Um, so I've not managed to have a big chat with them yet. Um, we're obviously expecting the ship to depart. So the, the in the next day or two. And so it's incredibly busy on station, but yeah, I'm, I'm, we're trying to organise a time, a suitable time, uh, where I can get on Skype and essentially um, have a good chat with, with all the winters and <laughs> sort of apologise for not being there and explain how I'm, I'm quite jealous and they're, they're still very lucky to be down there and trying not to get too focused on things that are going back on in the real world. Um, but and I've spoken to essentially the person who's sort of stepping into my shoes as the station leader while I'm there. But um, yeah, I'm going to have a, a bigger chat with the, the team as a whole and just say, hi, I'm sorry I'm not there, basically. You think they'll give you a hard time about not being able to go down? Um, no, I, I don't. Um, yeah, they probably will. Uh, <laughs> I've been mad and you tend to get a bit of a hard time about just about anything in general. So, <laughs> no, I think, I think they'll be quite sympathetic. So I've had a couple of messages from a couple of the guys down there and stuff and uh, sort of saying, sorry, I'm not going to make it down and they hope I'm okay and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, they should be, yeah, they should be quite nice about it all, I think. So, Matthew, let's just talk a little bit about what the kind of wider implications are for the British Antarctic Survey and for climate science, which is such a big part of the work that goes on down there. And obviously, with your team and, and your job, you kind of help coordinate the work of some of the researchers and the scientists who are going out and doing these field studies. But this seems like it's going to have a, a big knock-on effect on a lot of work that's happening down there on the continent. And so... I know there's some things that you can talk about, but can you maybe just outline a little bit like what this kind of means for climate science that's going on down on the continent because of these changed operations? Yeah, sure. So a lot of the science that uh, Bass has done and has been kind of so well documented in the media over the years is really down to the fact that we've been doing a lot of these studies, all of these science programs have been running for years, decades in some cases. Um, so obviously a disruption in them is, would be would be a concern. You know, it's, it's not a life and death thing, but, you know, a lot of that scientific research is... You know, gone to kind of prove the ozone and monitoring the hole in the ozone is a kind of a classic example and one that Bass is so kind of hotly linked with. Um, and obviously the whole climate change at the moment, you know, monitoring uh, sea temperatures and glacial retreat and things like that, the thinning of the ice and all this fresh water that's being added into the salt water and affecting, you know, the temperatures and currents and things like that. Um, and so it's really important that those things 
carry on if if at all possible. Um, so I think everything will be done to you know as long as it's kind of reasonable and safe to do so uh, to carry on these scientific experiments because yeah if you've obviously got a thirty year forty year uh, sort of you know set of data. Uh, and you have one missing year, then that's obviously going to throw um, throw that out, or maybe it loses a bit of its credibility as well. Um, everything will be done, carry on as much as normal. So, um, but we'll just have to wait and see what what comes out of the coming weeks, really. I think, um, and yeah, various people are going to have uh, sort of decisions to make on that, and but obviously, it's going to be done with uh, the best interests of people's sort of safety in mind. So the coronavirus has made big headlines around the world and obviously the Antarctic story is getting a lot of news coverage as well. But a lot of the focus is on the health implications of the virus getting down, but not a lot about the implications for disruption in climate science and what that means. So I think sometimes it can seem like, you know, this climate science just kind of writes itself. But as you know, that's not the case. So can you just talk a little bit about how it affects the climate science that's happening down there yeah sure so at the moment we're not seeing any effect and hopefully there, there won't be much um but yeah i think you're absolutely right and i think the thwaites uh, collaboration the project that uh, the british antarctic survey and the united states antarctic program usap uh, started off this last year on the thwaites glacier you know the, the bbc covered that quite well um, and they had reporters go down there and film on camp and report directly from Thwaites Glacier. Um, and so it would be easy to look at that and think, oh, well, you know, they've just gone down there, they're on the ice for two months and they'll get that science done. And, you know, that's it's all kind of wrapped up and, you know, it's in this little kind of two month bubble, if you like. Whereas the, in reality, that's been going on for years and years ago, building up just the effort to get the people, the logistics, the organization to acquire the funding and so on, because it's a special project. And to get those people down uh, to there is almost years of work in some cases. So there, there is potential for you know, kind of big disruption with this. You know, the funding should be fine, but you know, if the, the virus continues disrupting things, then there might be a knock-on effect to next season. Um, at the moment, that, none of that is confirmed and we're carrying on and some of the scientists and all the people with planning are at the moment, you know, working along the lines that they will be able to continue to do things as normal. So we'll just have to see what comes and it'll be a case of kind of rolling with the punches like pretty much everyone else is doing in the world. But yeah, certainly, you know, the, the science that you often see reported on is the end of years of work. So, um, yeah, the, the effects of this may have a knock-on effect for, for years to come, but BAS is actually very good. It's often said that we're very good at Plan B because generally the staff are so kind of adaptable and you know, uh, that we tend to find way around things, whereas what we'll have to see because obviously the coronavirus is, uh, is quite serious and is going to have quite a lot of implications for a huge amount of people. So it's just a case of waiting and seeing, I think. So what's the best-case scenario for you personally and for BAS? case scenario for bass is that uh, we were able to carry on with a, a normal season this year and i think that's not too unrealistic and in one sense you know the whole organizing and you know purchasing of all the food and all the supplies that go down to station that starts to happen at this 
time of year anyway. And so obviously if supply, the supply chain isn't kind of interrupted in some way, we should be able to do that and provide all those things that we would need to get onto station to have a normal season. And then we normally deploy people for the summer, November, December time. So who knows where we're going to be, um, you know, at the end of this year. Um, it might be possible that we have a normal season. So we're going to carry on and plan as though it will be a normal season and we'll, we'll see what comes out of it because obviously if we kind of plan for that being the case then, and it's a reduced season for whatever reason then you know at, at least you know we're not going to shoot ourselves in the foot whereas we would be if we plan for a reduced season now and then you know we find in you know six months time you know the, the whole situation is completely changed uh, and you know we could have had a full season but we didn't allow ourselves that because we ordered less food and so on. For me personally, it looks like I will head south, hopefully towards the end of this year. So I will go in essentially with what will be next season's team to station um, around November time. So we'll wait and see, obviously, there's so many variables and things that can and I'm sure will change between now and then in the coming months. But I, yeah, I hope to, to be going south again towards the end of this year. And so instead of a Antarctic winter, you have a, a Scottish summer. What are you going to be doing with your time? So I've, I've got myself a little office set up in my bedroom, um, which is the only option really at the moment. And other than that, well, I've, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I've got a front and a back garden. And so I've just planted some herbs and stuff in the garden and I might start growing my own uh, potatoes and carrots and things like that. And I'll, I'll find plenty of DIY jobs to keep myself busy. And obviously if the restrictions lift somewhat, then, you know, when I, if I've got the time and I'm not working, then got some of the best countryside in the world and the, and the mountains around Fort William so um, yeah, it should be quite nice actually I think this is going to be my second summer in the UK in the last the last decade actually um, so it's quite a rare thing for me and uh, yeah kind of you know anything above 10 degrees is certainly unusual for me or has been in the last 10 years um, so yeah it'd be quite nice I assume I'll do a lot of sweating. Oh that's good Matthew you enjoy your summer take a, a well-earned break and Thank you for the time. And once again, wasn't expecting to talk to you, but it's been it's been good to catch up. So all the best and uh, keep us updated and we'll speak soon. Yeah, that's great. It'd be good to chat to you. Thanks very much. And yeah, stay safe yourself. You can support the series through patreon.com slash farfeatures. Finally, we're new to podcasts, so please let us know what you think. Leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com slash two poles if you want to follow along you can find us wherever you listen to your podcast we're also on social media at two underscore polls on instagram and you can reach out to us and suggest a story or an interview if you like and you can even get a producer credit if you want to go on and give us some support at patreon.com forward slash far features until next time that's all